We're talking about the church being the light. And it's interesting how we talk about that. I, I w- woke up this morning and Karen said, did you see what's going on in Milwaukee? During the darkness of the night, as, as violence takes over, it's because of the darkness of the world that we live in. It's, in a way, it's not surprising to us that these things are happening. As people move farther and farther away from the hope that, that, that secures us and the absolute truth of who God is and the truth of His Word, as we move farther and farther from that, we move farther and farther into the darkness that moves us away from that. And, and more and more important for us as the church to live as the light. And remember last week we talked about if this room was pitch black and one person lit a match, that, that it would light the room. Maybe not to this extent. But the darkness cannot overcome the light. And the light pushes out the darkness. So we're called to be a church that lives as the light. And as we look at this summer of encouragement and we stop to think of what that looks like. And last week we, we looked at the, the, the first few verses of Titus and, and grabbed onto the truth that, that the truth of God in our hearts, that that brings light into our light, onto our life that leads us to godliness. Today we're looking at this, this truth that the church living at the light, as the light must have light living leadership. Light living leadership and how important that is for us. Have you been watching the Olympics at all? Welcome back, Carol. It's good to see you, David. The Olympics have been really interesting to watch, haven't they? And I don't know about you, but, but I love participating. How many of you participate in the Olympics the way I do? Karen, bring me the remote. (laughs) No, 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 I I would never do that. Uh, But the Olympics are fascinating, aren't they? To, To watch and to think and consider what these athletes do, the sacrifice they make in order to get to a place where they're able to compete at the level that they compete. And then to hear the backstories of them. I, I, I remember the other night I was hearing about this one woman who's a rower, and she rows all by herself, and, but she's kind of older. I'm putting everything in perspective. Most of these people are 16, but she's older as that goes. And, and she decided to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so for four years she's been training to be an orthopedic surgeon and training to be a world-class rower in the Olympics. What kind of commitment does that take? Perhaps you saw the, the race where Simone Manuel won, the, the 100 meter or something, and, and she got back to the end and she was just amazed. She tied with Canada. And she was just absolutely amazed, the look on her face that she had won. And, and then in her interview, giving glory to God. And they asked her the question, what is it like to contribute to this team? And she said, it, it, it's, it's so overwhelming and it means a lot to swim for Team USA. Because that's what we see in the Olympics is these, these athletes train individually to compete, but they, com- they compete as part of a team. 
And, and they work together in that way. There was another race I watched the other night. It was an 800-meter freestyle swim by the women. 16 laps of the pool. How many are you up for that? <laughs> I was watching with Charlie and Trish and the girls and, and Karen were, were there and, and, and Trish said that she had read somewhere that somebody said what they should do is put one normal person in the pool with them <laughs> just so that we could gain perspective, right? You know? You get like halfway down and stop to take a rest only you can't touch bottom. <laughs> you know? The other thing we see as we watch the Olympics is the families that are in the stands watching. The sacrifice that they've made so that these people can be there investing their time and their energy and their efforts in order to be in the game competing, being part of it. We see the coaches, how important the coaches are to what goes on. That, that these athletes, yes, they train, but you hear different comments about how the coach helped this 100-yard dash person or 100-meter, whatever it is, and how they helped them with the last half of their race so that now they're much more successful. Perhaps you saw the gymnast um, who, who came off the uneven parallel bars and her coach had some words of exhortation for her spoke firmly in her, strongly, because she needed to be awakened and, and moved on to the next things that, that were to come, the next events, and she ended up taking the gold by a larger margin than, than the last 20 years combined or something like that. As I've thought about that, and we understand every, every analogy breaks down at some point, but as I've started thinking about that and looking at it, as we look at what it means to be the church that lives as a light, how many of us are participating in the church in the way that we participate in the Olympics? We're on the sidelines looking in, thinking, wow, what would it be like to be in the game? I tell you, we are. We're in the game. We are, each one of us is running the race. We've each been brought in. You know, we've been brought in to run the race and we're, we're doing that individually, but we're doing it as a team as well. And we have our coaches, we have those people in our lives and we have others who are cheering us on, but it is absolutely critical and important as we live in this world that we're ready to live the light and encourage each other in the same way. And it requires sacrifice and training, and hard work. But we're up for it, aren't we? All right, good. Let's step into Titus. So we have a map for you here. And on the map, and you remember last, year, last week we talked about this, this is the island of Crete right here. And the island of Crete right there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And the red line on this particular map shows the trip and the journey that Paul took to go to Rome to face, to face his appeal to Caesar. So it was on this journey that's the only place in Scripture that we're told that he stopped on the island of Crete. This wasn't a voluntary stop. This was um, because of a, of a storm and, and everything else. And so he was there. But we don't think that he was here with Titus. 
most scholars believe that at some point in time he was released from Rome. And as he was released from Rome, he went around again and strengthened some churches. We're not given any record of that in Scripture. But it was during that time that he stopped on the island of Crete with Titus. And, and he was there with him then, many believe, and began to establish churches but needed to move on. And so he left Titus there. And so the letter has been written back to Titus to help him complete the work that he had started when Paul was with him. Now, we don't know exactly how the church started on the island of Crete. We're not told that in Scripture. Many believe that you'll remember that on the day of Pentecost, that day when Peter preached the first sermon in the power of the Holy Spirit, and Acts 2 tells us that there were people there from the island of Crete. Very likely they came to know the Lord and went back and began to share the truth that they had heard. But it was just a piece of the truth. So as Paul steps in, that's why we have this letter to Titus. And so as we pick up our text here in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says this to Titus. He says, the reason I left you on Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable. One who loves what is good is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Lord, as we look at your passage today, here in your word, we're so grateful, Lord, to think and contemplate that as you, through the Holy Spirit, breathe these words from Paul to Titus, you looked forward knowing that we would look at it together today. As such, you have something for us to learn, each person in this room. And Lord, I'm confident that as we open our hearts and our minds to you, you will teach us. And you will use this, your word, to move us closer to you, to be more the men and women you've designed us to be as we respond to your light in our lives. So we pray that you do that for your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our big idea for today is this. A light-living church needs light-living elders. If we're a church that's going to live as the light, we need to be a light-living church. And I believe we are. Amen? Amen. The light just radiates from you. As we look at that, we need light-living elders. And we see that truth in the letter that Paul sent to Titus. And it starts out here. Light-living elders are required. Paul tells Titus, he said, the reason I left you there is so that you could finish the work. You could straighten out what was not yet done and finish what we set out to do. Remember that this letter had been sent to Titus to give him the authority to do that which he was being told to do. So as Paul wrote this letter, he wrote it and he said, this gives Titus the authority. So as he showed this to the elders, he would be saying, see, Paul has charged me to do this. Now, Paul wasn't charging Titus to do something he hadn't done before or something he was unfamiliar with. Titus had traveled with 
Paul a lot and had been involved and he had been given many assignments by Paul. And so he was familiar with what Paul was after. He knew what he was to do on the island of Crete. As the church was to be established, elders were needed. So this church had been formed and started, but it didn't have yet the structure that Paul knew a church would need. A lot of times for us today, we think, boy, why do we have to have all this structure in the church? Can't we just let the Spirit move and, you know, the structure stops the Spirit and, you know, those kinds of things. Stop and consider, just for a minute, what would your life be like if you didn't have a skeleton? That's an interesting visual, isn't it? Glad to help you with that. Some of you will be fixated there for the next half hour. I've just lost you. But all right, as you, as you think about it, if we didn't have a skeleton, that structure that we needed, the rest of our body couldn't function at all in any way, in any shape. There would be a shape, but it wouldn't be a good shape. So what the skeleton allows us to have is the structure that's needed. And, and so Paul here allows for a structure that would allow the church to be what it needed to be on the island of Crete. But the other thing that's very interesting is not only do the elders provide the structure that's needed, they also provide the care and the protection. Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing. Being examples to the flock. So as, as this island of Crete, as, the, as we look at this, this is, a, this is an island that is, is filled with darkness. We looked at that last week. It's a place where people are very deceitful. They're dishonest. They're drunken. They're, they're just basically, it's, a, it's just an island that has the reputation of being a dark place. And so as the church is being formed, it's going to need to have the protection and care that comes from the elders that Titus is to assign. That as, as these elders come in place, they will be able to care for and nurture the people who come to know the Lord, the flock that's been entrusted to them. They will be able to take care of the ones that are wounded, the ones that are newborn. They'll be able to take them aside and feed them and nurture them and encourage them. The stained glass window we have shows just a glimpse of what it means and trying to imagine Jesus as our shepherd, but he calls elders to be under shepherds, caring for the sheep, holding them, nurturing them, loving them, watching them, protecting them. As Paul met with the Ephesians elders in, in Acts chapter 20, he says to them, watch out, wolves are going to come in. Wolves are going to come in and they're going to try to, to take your flock and, and they're going to come from within. So you see, as a, as a church, the church on Crete was going to be exposed and they would be exposed to attacks from the wolves of the outside and wolves from inside. And elders were to be put in place to help guard and protect and care for that. So they're absolutely necessary. It's the same for us. To understand that, 
that the culture is constantly pushing itself on the church, trying to conform the church to the likeness of the culture. But God has called the church not to conform to the, to the culture, but to transform the culture by the light that's been given to us. And elders, as they come on board for us, they help us in that they care for us, they nurture us, they protect us, and they guard us from anything that would come from without or from within that would cause us to be anything less than what God has designed for us to be. So how does seeing the need for elders help me understand the design of God for the church? The second thing we see as we, as we look at this idea that a light-living church needs light-living elders is that light-living elders are examples as they steward God's house. Light-giving elders are examples as they steward God's house. Now, it would be easy for, for some, of, some of you who feel like, well, this is about elders. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, understand that elders are coming in, and, and Peter says that they're to be examples. So, so elders are examples of how we are to live our lives. So the lists that we're going to start looking at that, that define elders are not just the list for elders. They're for all of us because we're all in the game. Remember that? We're, we're all in the game. We're not spectators. We're all in this. And so this is what we all aspire to. And as, as Titus comes, or as, as Peter or Paul comes to Titus and says, this is what you need first, in verse 6 he says, that an elder must be blameless. No problem. That'll make the list long, won't it? As we look over the men in the church and we say, okay, we're going to pick all the guys who are blameless to be elders. Stand up, please. Ooh, right? This gets overwhelming. When you start to look at this and you can begin to think this, this list these, in two verses, basically everything that's listed disqualifies every single person who's ever lived for eldership. You have to be careful when we read this passage to understand you do know there is nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. Nothing. Your sin has separated you from him so completely there is nothing you can do that will make yourself acceptable to God on your own effort. But he created you to be in a relationship with him. You have worth to God. And he rescues you. Not because of anything you've done, but because of his grace as you receive his forgiveness and you trust in him as your savior. He rescues you, he redeems you, and he purchases you back. Not because of the works you've done, but because of his mercy. He loves you and he steps into your life and he rescues you. Paul told the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, you've been saved by grace. Now why are you trying to make yourself good by doing the right things? Paul was very clear in all of his teachings to the Jews and to the Gentiles that it's not by the works that we do. It's by the grace of God that we are acceptable to him. How many times in your life do you do you come to the Lord in prayer and you think, I'm just not acceptable to God as I come to prayer? I've done these things and I know he's probably not going to be listening to me. 
See, there's nothing I can do that makes myself more acceptable to God and nothing I can do that makes myself less acceptable to God. God accepts me. That does not give me license to do whatever I want. That's what this text is about. The more that I get to know who God is in my life, the more that he comes in, the more that he changes me from who I was, and the more my actions become the actions that emulate him. The first thing he says to elders is this. An elder must be blameless and the husband of one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. The very first thing that Paul tells Titus is as you discover and you go and appoint these elders on Crete, these have to be men who are running their household well. These have to be men who are, who are loving their wives, men who have a relationship with their wives that is right, men who, have, who, who are raising their children correctly, men who have their house together. Blameless. One quote I read said this, being blameless means that an elder is the kind of man who no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear that this kind of man charged with such acts. So in other words, it's as you think about this man, you, if, if you were to hear he did something wrong, you'd be like, what? No, there's no way he did that. And it would be that way with his family. You would be shocked to hear that, that an elder had these kinds of things going on in his family as an example. And Paul makes it clear the reason that it's so important that an elder have his family together is because he's charged by God with stewarding God's house. When it says entrusted with God's work, what that means is an elder is charged to steward God's house. The reason it's important for me to take care of my house is because I've been charged by God to steward his house. And his house is not the beams, the lights, the, the, it's not that, it's you. You are God's house. Each one of us who've come to know Christ as our Savior are a living stone being built together, built on the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, being built together into a house. We are God's house. And an elder, Titus says, is to care for, steward God's house. And in order to do that, he has to be a man who has his own house in order. The elders in the room are squirming. Because as we read this list, we all know ourselves. We look in the mirror. I'm the perfect father, aren't I? Thank you, Trish. Not so much with Charlie, okay. (laughs) And rightfully so. I'm not the perfect father. I am, however, the perfect husband. (laughs) Last service when you were downstairs, I was the perfect husband, just so you know. In Philippians chapter 4, 
Paul says this. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put that into practice. Paul says, whatever you have seen in me, whatever you've learned, whatever, whatever you've, you can put that into practice. That's what an elder needs to be able to say. How many of you would like to come up here and say, whatever you've seen in me, you can put that into practice. How do I do that in front of my kids and my wife when I know how many times I've hurt them and how many times I've done it wrong? Paul in 1 Timothy said, I am the worst of sinners. How do those two things work together? How does Paul say, I am the worst of sinners, whatever you've seen in me, do that? It's the same way that it works for us. If Paul is the worst of sinners, I'm a close second. Or maybe I'm a third behind some of you. What you've seen in me, by God's grace, is the love of Jesus. Whatever you've seen in me that's of value for you to emulate, it's Jesus. I have nothing to offer you other than failure in myself. But the touch of Jesus in my life has brought me to a place where I radiate his light by his grace. And I don't mean that to sound prideful. I boast in nothing other than the Lord. And, and what you've seen in me as an elder is the light of Christ that's able to radiate through and it's able to show you that Jesus is bigger than any mistake in my life and as I ask him for forgiveness, he forgives me and as I see that I need to ask you for forgiveness, I'm able to do that. As I strive to live my life in a way that radiates the love of Christ, that's what Paul's getting at here as he writes to Titus. As you set up elders, you set up elders who are able to radiate the love of Christ in a way that shows that they're doing their house right so they can take care of God's house because God's house is so important. It is the body of Christ. So we need elders in place who are doing that. As he speaks to Titus here, it's so interesting to me that as we think of what we know about Titus, or about Crete. It was a place where, where people were overbearing and quick-tempered and drunk and violent and, and trying to cheat each other. And so the five things that Paul tells Titus that these elders, you have to make sure they're not doing these things. It's the things that because of their culture they would be the most tempted to be doing. Because they would have been saved from this culture that told them that drunkenness is okay. They would be saved from a culture that says it's okay to be overbearing. They would be saved from a culture that says it's okay to be a cheat. They would be saved from a culture that says it's okay to be violent. You see, and, and so he's saying these people that you, that you select, that you appoint to be elders, must not be the things that the culture is. They must, because of the light of Christ shining through them, be the exact opposite of the culture. Because the light is the opposite of darkness. 
And there has to be a light that's vibrant in these men, so much so that their lives are changed. Not drunk, not quick-tempered, not violent. It's very important that elders don't have addictions. They're not, they're not men who are given to addictions. They're not, they're not men who are, who are given over to things that control them other than Christ. They're men who have given themselves to the Lord completely. They're not men who are proud. They're not men who have said, I've got this all together. It's what I believe it means when Paul says they need to be hospitable. Hospitable. What that means is I need to be willing to have any one of you over to my house anytime you want. Just come over and knock on the door and walk in and whatever we're in the midst of doing, that's great. I have nothing to hide. And that's because I've got it all together. Karen and I are doing it just perfect. Every minute of the day. She never stressed with me. Not even. Not even close. What our heart and our desire is, is to live our lives before you in a way that's transparent and open and vulnerable so that you can see the things that we're going through. You can see the struggles that we have. And you're able to see that, that it's not that we don't have the same struggles, but that together we turn our heart towards the Lord and we do everything we can to love the Lord in such a way that he pours through us. We do that so we can be examples to you of what it means to be free. And when we mess up, with David we pray, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. How many times I've prayed that prayer. It comes from Psalm 69. And along with David said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please, don't let this impact your house. Elders are to be holy. Holy. Could you imagine saying I'm holy? What this means is to say I've set myself aside. I've set myself apart. I, I am saying that I am totally consecrated and set aside for the service of the Lord. I've given him the deed of my heart. It belongs to him and I serve him and him alone. Those are the men that he's looking for to be elders. These are men who are successful. Successful men. No, not as the world sees success. No, no, no. But as God sees success. And one of the greatest verses, I believe, to help us understand how God sees success is in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, where, where God tells Joshua, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but be careful to meditate on it day and night, being careful to do everything that is written within it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. These are men who meditate on the Word of God. They meditate on the Word of God and that makes them successful. 
The other thing to see in this text is it's very clear that Paul is telling Titus these are to be men. And in the, the world that they lived in, it was clear that, that, that there were to be the men who were the overseers, who were the elders in this church. That, that they were to be the ones, because of the way that they ran their household, they were to be the ones who were to care for God's household. Paul, in his understanding of this, went back to the very design of God in the garden. In Timothy, he talks about the fact that, that Adam was created first and then Eve. In Romans chapter 5, he points out that even though Eve had sinned, it was Adam in which the sin was passed on to all of us. See, God, God holds men accountable and responsible. Men, we are accountable and we are responsible to God. It is the role that has been given to us. We are to care and nurture and watch over our wives. We are to protect them. We are to guard them. We are charged with that. It is our role. It does not mean in any way that we do not have the same value as women, not in any way. We are, we are equal in our value in God's sight, but we each, we've each been given a different role. Joe, is Tim different than you? A little bit here and there? You're the same in a lot of ways, but you're different. And God has a different role for each one of us. For men and women, it's a different role. And it's important to see that. And Pastor Tim started a class downstairs at the 9 o'clock hour on the whole idea of gender. And we were talking how 25 years ago, probably wouldn't even have thought of having a class on gender. It was understood what God's design and his plan was. But now... We have to have a class on explaining what God believes as it relates to gender. We have to help people understand from God's word that man and woman are created by God according to his design, and this is what you've been created. You, you don't have an opportunity to self-identify. God's created you that way. And 96 people pack in the room because they're all wondering what the Bible says about gender. But you see, it, it, it impacts the way that we deal in our relationships as men and women. To understand that God has a design for us in our genders is huge and it's important. And men, that causes us to fulfill the role that God's given us. And women, it, it causes you to fulfill the role that God's given to you. And both of the roles are critical. Both of the roles are absolutely critical to God's design. And I understand there's a lot of singles in the room. There's a lot of people who've been scarred by divorce, by broken families. You don't approach a group this size anymore without the hurt and the pain of that emulating itself in all different ways. And I would say to you that it finds its roots in the fact that we haven't been biblically sound in what God has designed for gender to be. And when we stay within God's design, and it's one of the most important things I talk to, to 
couples when we're doing premarital is that they understand God's design for marriage. And if you've been scarred by this, you need to remember that Jesus is bigger than any mistake. You are not identified by your past and you are not identified by the things that have defeated you. You are identified by the grace of God in your life who has brought forgiveness into your life. But God's design for elders is that they're men who have their houses together so that they can care for God's house, so that those people who come in who've been broken by the culture, who've been, who've been crushed by that, the people who come in have someone who cares for them, someone who takes responsibility, someone who is accountable to God for how each one is cared for, and that's what an elder is. So how does knowing that my elders are striving to be examples as they steward God's house cause me to pray for them? And how does it motivate me to follow their example? Because that's the deal. They're here as our examples. The next thing that Paul tells Titus, light-living elders uphold the light of truth. They uphold the light of truth. They are men of Scripture. They are men who are grounded in the Word of God, who absolutely believe that this is not just a book that contains truth, but it is a book that is truth. And as he was talking to, to the men of the island of Crete, he would have been talking to them about the things that they had learned. And they wouldn't have learned this, because much of this came after that, but they would have learned the, the Old Testament. They would have been taught the principles of God and shown where the Messiah was, was Jesus was the Messiah that was coming from that. They would have been taught those things. They would have been taught the principles of God, the nature and the character of God. They would have been taught salvation by grace. They would have been taught that they've been set free from sin so that they don't have to choose sin in their lives anymore. They would be taught these things and they would hold to Scripture. Scripture is the authority in the life of an elder. It's not their experience. It's not what they think is right. It's not what tradition tells them is right. It's what Scripture says. That's what holds an elder because Scripture is what holds the church. Scripture is the light that allows us to shine out to the world God's truth. Elders are men of the word. They are, they are men who have a biblical worldview. They are men who don't hold beliefs. They are men of conviction. They are men of conviction. You see, I hold my beliefs, but my convictions hold me. And the difference is when something comes into my life that causes me to wonder whether or not something's true, that's a belief. But if it's conviction, there's nothing that's going to shake me from that. An illustration that, that I've used before and perhaps you've heard is, is this young man who had, who had been charged to, to do a project in his class. And, and so he came and he presented the principle of the pendulum. And the principle of the pendulum is this, is that a pendulum will never, will never come back any farther than the point from which it's released. And so he said to the professor, do you believe in the, in the principle of the pendulum? And the, and the professor said, of course I do. Pendulum will never come back beyond the point from which it's been released. And so the student said, okay, I just happen to have over here, and on this side of the room he had a big platform set up with a chair on it. And so he put the professor up on the top of the platform there, about 10, 12 feet in the air, and put him on a chair. And then he, he had a giant pendulum set up. It just happened to be a room the same size as this one. What a coincidence. And so there was this giant pendulum set up there. 
And so he pulled the pendulum back and he brought it all the way back and put it right up at the nose of the professor. And he said, now you believe, right? And the professor said, absolutely, I believe in the principle of the pendulum. And so the student let the pendulum go and it swung across the room. Whoosh. Swung across the room. And it came up. And then it started to come back, picking up speed as it went. And it came down, started to pick up speed, and it came back. And it went right towards the professor. And as it was approaching him, he jumped off the chair. Did he believe in the principle of the pendulum? But it wasn't a conviction for him. Elders are men who have conviction. And their conviction is based on the Word of God. It's based on the principles of God. It's based on the nature and the character of God and who God is. It would be very easy to look at these lists and to look at these qualifications for elders and have them step into a place of legalism, a checklist. Is the elder this? Yes, yes, yes. No, no, yeah. Okay, well, he's got an 80%. Let's do it. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a knowledge that leads to godliness. Remember from last week? Elders are men who spend time with God. In his word, they love God. They love Jesus. And they're allowing Jesus to change their lives so that these things are being pushed out of their lives. They are not perfect men. They are men who are revealing Christ. Now you might say to yourself, this doesn't work for me. I'll never be an elder. I will never swim like Michael Phelps. That ship has sailed. I could go to the pool every day for 20 hours, and I could work out, and I could do all the things. I could, I could try to like water. I could do all those things but I will never swim like Michael Phelps. But I'll tell you what, in my blow-up pool in the backyard, I can bounce around with my grandkids. And I can have the most fun in there because that's my role in the game. You see, each one of us has a role. In the day and age we're living in, it's said if, if I have one of these and you want one of these, you should have one just because you want it. You know, everybody gets the same thing. That's not the way it is in God's economy. Each one of us has a special role. Amen. Tom, you're not called to do what I do. I'm not called to do what you do. You go put roofs in Africa. I'll stay here. <laughs> but I'm glad you go and do that. See, each one of us has a role. Stay married 50 years. Amen. See, each one of us has something to do. And for us to do this in a way that brings the most glory to God, we need elders who are caring for us, who are shepherding us, who are watching over us, who are seeking God's word, who are allowing the light of God to change their lives in such a way that you have an example to follow. They are cleverly disguised amongst you. 
They are standing as I speak so that you can see what one of them looks like. You're a shepherd. You stand up. Be brave. It's okay. See, they're all doing this because of how proud they are of the fact that they match this perfectly. No. They're standing because they need your prayers. Because they're men just like, just people. But God has called them to watch over you. And they're your examples of his work in our lives. Tim, pray a blessing over us, will you? Our Heavenly Father, we understand that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy that you saved us. Uh, We also acknowledge, Lord, that there's nothing that we can do that will cause you to love us more, and there's nothing we can do to cause you to love us less. We're just so thankful that Christ came and died for us while we're in trespasses and sin. And Lord, as elders, we acknowledge that that we are sinners saved by grace. And when we look at this passage of Scripture, it it really causes us to to turn to you and realize that um, in ourselves, Lord, there's, there's nothing we can do that uh, would cause those uh, characteristics to characterize our lives on our own. It's only through the power of your Spirit as we uh, seek you. And so, Lord, I pray for the elders of Calvary. I pray for the elders of our surrounding churches, uh, the elders in our nation and the elders in the world, Lord, that they will continually seek you, Lord. It begins with our relationship with you individually. And so I just pray for our elders here, Lord, that uh, as they continually uh, seek you, that you will give them uh, wisdom and discernment, Lord. And it's such a privilege to be an elder here at Calvary. And so I I commit these men to you, Lord, and just pray that you will just continue to to guide and direct us as a body uh, as uh, the elders continue to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.